Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Ditch of Dreams, the cross-Florida barge canal, and the struggle for Florida's future. This will be the linchpin, you know, the missing link, the, 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 the capstone. You know, they use all these kind of grand terms to, to describe what this canal will be. The story of how grapefruit came to Florida. Back then, the island of Barbados was also called the Paradise Island. While he was there, he found a fruit which he did not know what it was, and it was a grapefruit. And the founding of St. Augustine in 1565. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Canal opened in 1825, linking New York City to the Great Lakes, allowing New York to become the primary port for the United States. By 1918, the Erie Canal was enlarged into the New York State Barge Canal. During that same time period, a series of politicians and businessmen envisioned cutting a canal from one side of Florida to the other, creating a direct pathway for commercial boat traffic from the Atlantic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. Stephen Knoll and David Tegeter are authors of the book Ditch of Dreams, The Cross-Florida Barge Canal and the Struggle for Florida's Future, published by the University Press of Florida. The book won the 2010 Rembert Patrick Award for Best Scholarly Book on a Florida History Topic. You might think that the idea of cutting the Florida Peninsula in half with a canal is a more contemporary idea, but David Tegeter says that people have been envisioning such a trade route for quite some time. The Cross Florida Barge Canal is a result of really centuries of thinking. Uh, since Spanish exploration, people have been drawn to this idea of finding a waterway and, if not, making one uh, across the peninsula, basically to save three hour, uh, three, a three day journey um, around the peninsula. And since Florida territorial days, um, the Florida legislatures had been turning to the federal government, especially the Army Corps of Engineers, to conduct surveys to find the best location to link the Gulf of Mexico to the Atlantic Ocean. And um, in 1935, there will be first the construction of the 
of the ship canal, the Gulf Atlantic Ship Canal, which was a 30-foot deep um, waterway about 200 miles in length between actual digging and dredging, um, where ocean-going vessels would cross the state of Florida through Ocala at a rate of about one an hour, about 25 ships a day. Um, as a result of a threat to the aquifer, uh, issues of saltwater intrusion, uh, there will be a turn towards creating a barge canal only 12 feet deep um, through the use of locks and dams, uh, a relatively safer way of traversing the, uh, the state. But that, as we'll see, creates a host of issues by the 1960s that will challenge the necessity for a canal. Proponents of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal planned a series of locks and dams that would allow a canal to be created from Jacksonville to Yankee Town, which is north of Tampa and west of Ocala. Stephen Knowles says that the story of this canal begins and ends at the Oklawaha River and Silver Springs. Well, the Oklawaha River is the center of the argument about the canal, uh, particularly in the 1960s. In the late 19th century, the Oklawaha is the center of Florida tourism as it provides an avenue into this um, pristine subtropical wilderness that is so different from the rest of America with its uh, varied wildlife and its strange uh, trees with Spanish moss. And uh, its uh, major tributary, the Oklahoma, is, is the Silver River, which uh, boils up from uh, Florida's largest spring, Silver Springs. So uh, the Florida tourist industry grew up in these steamboats, which traversed uh, the both the Oklahoma and the Silver from Palatka down to um, Silver Springs. And so this is the center of, of tourism in the late 19th century. Uh, in the 1960s, um, anti-canal environmental activists utilized the literature of the 19th century to build a case for uh, saving this wonderful, unique, natural treasure, um, which they see as being destroyed by the canal. There were stops and starts to the Barge Canal project, and the arguments for why the canal was needed changed. But with the Great Depression of the 1930s, renewed interest in the project led to actual construction. David Tegeter. Yeah, the Great Depression is going to be one of the major arguments for canal construction. One, it'll, it'll resonate in the sense that, you know, with this canal will come economic growth and progress, right? But the construction itself, um, largely as a stimulus program, um, in 19, you know, when the Depression is reaching its peak, in, uh, in 1933, when there's 25 percent unemployment, there's now a compelling argument. We need this canal for jobs. And in the end, that's why the federal government will allocate money for it. Uh, and so in September of 1935, uh, 6,000 men are going to descend upon uh, Ocala, Florida, and and begin this construction. And it's, it's boomed. It's, it's, Ocala is now a boomtown, uh, rapid growth. Um, in one week, the the city issues ten liquor licenses. You know, as, as a measure of that optimism, and uh, and prosperity begins. So, so the idea is, is you know, this is a construction job that'll get people to work immediately. During their research for the book Ditch of Dreams, Noel and Tegeter uncovered evidence of violence against labor organizers during the Barge Canal construction in the 1930s. Stephen Noel. 
Labor is an issue in the 1930s, and when we think about labor activism and labor disputes, we usually think of large, heavy industry uh, in the Midwest, uh, Northeast, uh, particularly uh, Detroit and the auto industry. But in 1936, a labor organizer comes down to the canal, a, a man named George Timmerman. Uh, we're not sure whether he's associated with any major union, but certainly he's there to try to ensure that uh, workers are getting paid fairly, that their uh, working hours are, are shorter, they're working conditions are okay, and he is uh, pretty much told by the powers that be within Ocala that he is not uh, welcome there, and by told, I mean that he is uh, captured, roughed up, and found in the woods, uh, crucified, tied to a tree with his lips sewn shut um, as a warning that labor activism will not be uh, tolerated on the canal, and um, after that, Mr. Timmerman kind of disappears from the historical record. While construction of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal was part of President Roosevelt's New Deal, opposing political forces temporarily stopped the project in 1935. David Tegeter points out that some of the work that was completed can still be seen today. By that point, they had done the rough excavation of key parts, especially towards the west. Um, in terms of, they, they had bridge stanchions, um, that were to be part of the Dixie Highway going over the canal, and those remain to this day along 441, just south of Ocala. Um, but what, what's important in the 1930s is, is the remnants of the diggings, right? The, the, these cuts in the ground will be a reminder of, of one, you know, not just a, a project that's failed, but, but the money and effort that went into it. And canal boosters will point to that, and, and especially the bridge stanchions, and say, look, we, we've started this. We need to finish it. Stories of large-scale construction projects, such as highways destroying African-American communities, are common. The intersection of I-4 and the East-West Expressway in Orlando is just one example. The African-American town of Santos fell victim to the cross-Florida barge canal in the 1930s. Stephen Knoll. Santos is a uh, African American town about six miles south of Ocala that uh, um, basically is separate from white Florida. Uh, you know, these people work both their own farms and also uh, within the wider community, but it is a an African American uh, community um, built around both Saturday night juke joints and Sunday morning churches, um, and. It is uh, wiped off the map in the 1930s by uh, the canal. Um, the canal is never built there, but the land is taken from these people, either from eminent domain or, or purchased by pennies on the dollar, and the town is basically destroyed. Um, the only town that will be wiped out completely by the canal. Um, and you know, the people who, who lived there uh, both felt... Uh, abandoned by the government, but also felt uh, proud that they were at least at some level contributing to something positive for the government. Um, then they again felt abandoned when the canal was not built. But in, you know, in the ultimate irony, the canal is supposed to be for jobs, jobs that were not offered to African Americans um, in the Jim Crow South. So the jobs that were um, available on the canal were for whites only. So these people give up their houses, their land, their hard work, hard-won houses and land um, for the possibility of a better life that is not even offered to them. Federal funding allowed construction of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal to resume in 1964, with President Johnson presiding over the groundbreaking ceremony. In the decades prior, national defense joined job creation as a rationale for building the Cross-Florida Barge Canal. 
after the canal, as the ship canal has stopped in 1936, boosters feel that they have to come up with a new rationale for building it, have to build consensus within Congress, within a wider national constituency. And with the world lurching uh, precariously towards war in the late 1930s, um, the issue of national defense takes prominence in their selling of the canal. And the national defense angle is that the canal will provide a sheltered waterway um, for protection, especially for oil tankers as they traverse the waters um, from the oil fields of Texas and Oklahoma to the refineries of New York that these ships can go uh, along the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, then through the uh, the soon to be built for them cross Florida barge canal then along the intercoastal all the way to New York and they will not be able to be uh, uh, victims to the predatory um, operations of, of enemy submarines whoever they might be that argument continues after the war um, in the 1950s it'll be a cold war and so you'll have a replacement of that you know of that threat from Nazi Germany with now Soviet subs and with the Cuban Revolution now perhaps Cuban submarines, right? So the national defense argument resonates over decades. Job creation and national defense weren't the only reasons given for building the cross-Florida barge canal. Proponents also claimed it would be an integral part of a national waterway system. It's trying to find new rationales to sell the project. And, you know, this part of this integrated national waterways project becomes an important reason for having the canal. We, we need an alternative to, to, to rails. We need an alternative to trucking. These monopoly industries are going to, going to you know, have predatory pricing, and this will offer a, a reasonable alternative. And, you know, especially for bulk commodities, it'll provide a, a, a cheaper means of transportation. And you know, the words they keep using for this cross-Florida barge canal are missing link. You know, they connect the waterways of the Mississippi region to the waterways of the East Coast, which now have no connection, and this will be the linchpin, you know, the missing link, the, 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 the capstone. You know, they use all these kind of grand terms to, to describe what this canal will be. And it'll be a, a link that will be connected to other proposed canals, such as the Sanford-Titusville Canal, right, to connect the Gulf to, uh, you know, Cape Canaveral. Uh, rockets constructed in Huntsville, Alabama, will now be shipped to uh, the east coast of Florida with ease. Also, another argument will be flood control. Um, in the late 50s and early 60s, there will be uh, a series of, of floodings that, you know, the, the people will now say, you know, this is another way that we can manage Florida's water resources. And, and finally, in looking for ways to, to sell the canal, uh, boosters come upon the ideas of recreation, that, you know, the canal will provide recreation for the masses. Instead of having this river that's beautiful, but, but, um, but, um, accessible only to a few, those hardy few in, 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 a, in kayaks or canoes. We can make it accessible to the masses in power boats and, and you know, make it at some level a democratic recreation and tying into the ideas of TVA, which, you know, gives, and they, and they talk about where there's, you know, 4,000 more mileage of, 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 of riverfront property, of waterfront property. You know, so, so bizarrely, they want to connect this idea of, of commercial transportation with this idea of democratized recreation, um, which in retrospect seems silly, but you know, they're, they're looking for other ways to sell this idea.
When construction on the Cross Florida Barge Canal resumed in 1964, about a third of the project was completed before it was finally stopped in 1971. As David Tegeter explains, the halting of the project was largely due to the efforts of environmental activist Marjorie Carr. The overarching argument is how this will threaten the Ocklawaha River. I mean, this is about preserving the Ocklawaha as this, to her mind, pristine waterway, this rare canopied river that was a true national treasure. Historically, it wasn't so pristine, but compared you know, to elsewhere, and, and most certainly compared to the proposed canal, um, this was a unique uh, river. And what you'll see is, is her developing a coalition of folks Uh, beginning out of a meeting with out of Florida Audubon, the local chapter in Gainesville, and going through two important iterations. First, in the early '60s, a, a group, just to use the shorthand label, uh, Citizens for Conservation. Although that's an important argument that that you know they want to conserve the Ocklawaha River Valley, both its not only for fishing, but also local habitat for wildlife, especially turkeys and all that. And it's interesting, they use the argument, you know, X amount of turkey hunting habitat will be destroyed, right? Um, using this conservationist ethic. By the end of the decade, by the end of the 1960s, you'll see more of an argument towards preservation, that this is a, a river valley uh, distinct in and of itself and needs to be preserved as, as this distinct national treasure. Um, and by that point, Carr will have created with associates like Bill Partington and David Anthony and John Kaus. Um, to be sure, I mean, she's most associated with this, but she had a cadre of people who, uh, who worked diligently on this project. But they will create what's called Florida Defenders of, Environment, of the Environment, uh, FDE. And by then, they'll be making this argument about preserving the Ocklawaha. To help put an end to the Cross Florida Barge Canal, environmentalists could point to the use of a gigantic, destructive, tractor-like machine called the Crusher that decimated Florida's natural landscape. It's a machine designed specifically for use on the Oklahoma, built by a man named F. Brown Gregg out of Leesburg, um, specifically to... Um, mow down the trees in the Oklawaha River Valley um, to provide for the establishment of the Rodman Reservoir. Um, this machine was designed to make the removal of the trees quick and efficient. Um, and it did its job too well by destroying the natural environment so profoundly, Carr and her other FDE allies could bring people out to the river and say, look at what it looked like before, and you know, parts of it that hadn't been touched, we go from there to this, which looked like at some level an atomic wasteland. And she could say, this is what they are doing to the river. Plus, any concerns about economics, FDE could argue, you know, that What's happening is all these trees, which could be harvested, sold for timber, and at least alleviate some of the cost, that's not happening. This thing is just knocking them down into the muck. And when the reservoir is flooded in 1968, these pop up to the top of, of the water to be harvested there and burned because there's no way to get them out. So not only is it ugly and destructive, it is wasteful and um, problematic as well. Yeah, and this caught serious uh, attention across the state. Uh, 
Lawton Childs during his famous Walk in Lawton campaign uh, will walk through the Ocklawaha Valley and, and point to this issue and, and, and see this as an unsightly mess. So it, it captured the imagination. And this thing could mow down um, six 80-foot cypress trees in one swath. It basically cleared about an acre an hour. Uh, it was quite formidable. The cross-Florida barge canal was finally killed in 1971. Today, though, there are still unresolved issues left over from the attempt to create a canal for commercial water traffic from one side of Florida to the other. Stephen Knoll. Well, well, there's two kind of at-odds remnants of the canal. Number one is the 107-mile cross-Florida Greenway, now known since 1988 as the Marjorie Harris Carr cross-Florida Greenway, which is this linear park um, which is managed by the um, uh, Office of Greenways and Trails of the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, which is this amazing swath of greenery in the midst of, of uh, north from Orlando and south from Ocala Sprawl um, that uh, preserves and protects a part of natural Florida that would have been gone. Um, and ironically, it's preserved because the canal was going to be there. So that, that's this positive impact. On the other hand, there's this continuing uh, debate and discussion over um, what's going to happen with the Oklawaha River as, as the Kirkpatrick Dam is still there, the reservoir, the Robin Reservoir behind it is still there, and the river does no longer flow freely um, to the St. John's, and um, FDE still is pushing for uh, the dam to be removed. Um, federal authorities still are pushing for the dam to be removed. Um, and the longer it stays up, the longer the ecosystem behind the dam uh, becomes naturalized, as it were, and those people who are in favor of it maintain that um, it is an acceptable natural part of Florida and should be maintained. And as well as they maintain the reason that it's important to keep it is it provides significant economic growth to a rather economically depressed county, which is uh, Putnam County, and the growth, the economic engine there is bass fishing. Stephen Knoll and David Tegeter are authors of the book Ditch of Dreams, the Cross-Florida Barge Canal and the Struggle for Florida's Future, published by the University Press of Florida. While most Floridians today are pleased that the environmental damage that the completion of the canal would have caused has been stopped, there are still some who wish that Florida had its own version of New York's Erie Canal. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If you enjoy this program, you'll also want to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. Just go to our website at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. The Spanish discoverers of the New World in the 15th and 16th centuries built their first cities in the present Caribbean states in Mexico, and in the South American countries of Colombia and Peru. 
Here in the United States of America, the first European city was founded in Florida by the Spaniard Pedro Menendez de Aviles. Because he had made his first landfall at Cape Canaveral on August 28, 1565, the feast day of St. Augustine of Hippo, Menendez decided to name his first Florida settlement St. Augustine. The European occupants of the site, now so well known to tourists, were 200 sailors, 500 soldiers, 100 farmers and craftsmen, some with their wives and children, and also four Catholic priests. The permanent community they founded will be 450 years old in 2015. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Grapefruit, along with oranges and tangerines, are so common in our state that we often think of them as being indigenous to Florida. But as Janie Gould reports, grapefruit were brought here. Citrus historian Paul Driscoll likes to tell people that if Napoleon hadn't met his Waterloo, the grapefruit might never have come to Florida. It has to do with a character by the name of Count de Flippy, who served as a surgeon in Napoleon's navy. When Napoleon was defeated by the British, Count de Flippy wound up in the United States. He eventually settled on the west coast of Florida, near the present-day town of Safety Harbor. He became a tree farmer. He started his tree farm and wanted to get other species to grow, so he went down to the island of Barbados. Back then, the island of Barbados was also called the Paradise Island. While he was there, he found a fruit which he did not know what it was, and it was a grapefruit. He decided to bring it back to Florida. Did he give it the name grapefruit? No, the scientific name for grapefruit was Citrus Paradisi after the fact that Barbados was called Paradise Island. I thought citrus was native to China. Citrus is native to China, but the grapefruit is not known in China. What is known in China is a large, similar-looking fruit called a pomelo. Some pomelos were brought to Barbados about 1649 by an English sea captain named Philip Shattuck. Sometimes they're called the Shattuck instead of the pomelo. Do they taste like a modern grapefruit? They're a very dry fruit, but the Chinese like them. The fruit sacks are very individual, and you can scrape them and use them in salads. It's not as juicy as a grapefruit. But the Chinese still eat them? They still raise them? Yes. In fact, there was a Chinaman raised some south of Stewart. had about 20 acres down there. Of pomelos? Of pomelos. Did you eat them? I've tasted them, but I've never used them as a diet. In 1981, two California researchers, by doing DNA work, discovered that the grapefruit is an accidental crossing of a pomelo and a sweet orange, probably occurred in the 1700s. Where do they think it happened? That was in Barbados. Now, Count de Flippe took seed from the grapefruit. He planted a grove in Safety Harbor, which was later owned by Mr. Duncan, and that's how the variety got its name Duncan. In other words, the regular garden variety grapefruit is known as the Duncan grapefruit. That's the white seedy grapefruit. Probably the only place you can find it now is in specimen gardens. The Duncan also has a characteristic that gave all grapefruit its name. It grows in clumps. So when people looked at the Duncans, they called it grapefruit. It looked like a clump of grapes. 
The grapefruit industry has taken a beating in recent years, the result of dismal economic conditions and diseases such as canker and greening. Driscoll, who is retired from citrus management in St. Lucie County, says total acreage of grapefruit groves in Florida dropped from 146,000 in 1994 to 53,000 at present. That's a decline of about two-thirds. A while back, he went to see one of the groves that he used to manage. It was very, very sad just riding out to the grove and seeing other groves that I'd known most of my working career, seeing them abandoned, pushed up, bare land. It was really sad, and as a native Port Pierce person, I know three citrus families that were three generation at least growers that aren't in the business today. What's your favorite kind of citrus? Well, you know, I really made my living growing grapefruit, and I like a good grapefruit as much as any kind. What's the future of grapefruit? I don't know what the future is going to be. Paul Driscoll writes about the history of Florida's citrus industry. Cheney Gould from WQCS prepared that report. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please come back next week, and until then, visit us on our website at myfloridahistory.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Markle.